friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for coming back to Conversations with Consequences week after week. We hope we're giving you great conversations. I know that we have wonderful guests. Today, we are very happy to have Greg Schleppenbach. He's the executive director of the Culture Project International. They are doing great things to advance the pro-life cause and the dignity of life and understanding of the virtues within schools and parishes. We also have our dear friend, Father Ben Keeley, back with us. He has just come back, just come back from Iraq, and he's going to tell us what's going on in that complicated place. Welcome back to the show, Father. Thank you, Gracie, as always, for being so generous with your time, letting me speak uh, on your show quite a few times, I think. You know, Father, here in the United States, we enjoy, uh, and in England also, where you are, we enjoy uh, the benefits of being able to practice our faith freely. Sometimes we feel, we do feel somewhat oppressed because as, as our, our countries become more secular, there's less understanding of, of the needs of the faithful, right? But uh, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East obviously live under tremendously oppressive conditions and, and they live in danger. So your periodic reminders of their plight and explaining to us what they're going through, and they inspire us to pray for them and and to find other ways to help them. Well, thank you, Gracie. I actually liked your intro because you were slightly mistaken when you said about my work in the Holy Land because I've never (laughs) been to the Holy Land. Oh, I'm sorry. I think of the Holy Land as that whole beautiful place where Christianity was born. (laughs) Exactly. That is my point, that... The Holy Land is really the whole of the Middle East. I mean, our Lord himself, or certainly his disciples, walked on the sands of Lebanon and Syria Mm -hmm. and Egypt, we know for certain. And so, yes, the Holy Land is really that whole area. Um, So I'm, and in fact, I'm actually going to the, the Holy Land to okay. Israel for the very first time at the end of um, end of February. But that was a good intro because it is the Holy... And that's why it's important, I think, for our listeners to understand when it's our roots. I, I try and say this every time, but, you know, a tree that has its roots cut off is going to die. And for us in the West, our roots are Middle Eastern. Sometimes people say to me, sometimes in the United States and in England, but oh, when did we bring Christianity to the Middle East? And you have to look and smile and say, they brought us Christianity. Without them, our, our roots are Eastern. I mean, that's just a fact. We well, are, Father, we are really you know, it was, it was my contact with you and learning from you that where I where I made that understand, where I finally, you know, understood that because even I, that I think that I have a good historical grasp of things. You think of the Middle East as a Muslim country, a Muslim area, and it's that's ridiculous in a sense historically because well, the, Muslims, ridiculous. the Muslims, the Muslims didn't like even exist saying... until the year six hundred and AD. Exactly. And obviously, the whole region is the cradle of Christianity, and and has had Christianity always present since Jesus walked there. Exactly, and it's a bit like when people say because I'm English, they say, "Oh." You, you have uh, Catholicism in England. They say, yeah, <laughs> Henry VIII tried to get rid of it uh, in the 1520, 1580. And but, he was yeah, very we were, thorough, Father. He was very thorough, unfortunately, but we're still here somehow. I mean, most of the cathedrals have gone to the Anglicans, but yeah, we're still here. So yeah, they, they, they work out the same way that this is the root of Christianity. The cradle is a very also a very good word. It's where Christianity was born, the Lord himself. We just celebrated the Feast of Christmas. And in in fact, we're about to celebrate, or we will have celebrated, the Feast of Candlemas uh, when the program is broadcast. So um, the end, truly. And that was rather encouraging when I was in Iraq that I walked into family houses and into churches, obviously, but family houses. And there was the Christmas tree and the Christmas tree, uh, Christmas decorations still up. And um, many people think Christmas ends on the 25th of December. The true season finishes on February the 2nd. So they were surprised. They sort of said, well, of course we've got decorations. 
decorations up, you know, so it, <laughs> it was nothing unusual. I didn't dare tell them that some people take the Christmas tree down on the 25th of and, December. And you didn't tell they, them that Christmas started on Thanksgiving, which the well, day after Thanksgiving, no. which is also a that's fallacy. A, <laughs> that's another story. But no, but I mean, Father, to be serious. Father, Iraq is on. a very dangerous place. How do you travel in Iraq safely? What cities do you visit? It's comparative. I mean, it's less, much less dangerous than it was, uh, certainly. Uh, but the Nineveh Plain is is a problem, and the city of Mosul, where I've been to now four times, that's it's risky. But it's not. You know, I don't want to sort of play the James Bond figure. I mean, I've only been into Mosul with armed guards twice, and that was the first time in 2018 and 19 because then it was much more dangerous. It's just. And do you a bit, travel out, obviously bit, as a priest? Do you wear a Oh, yeah. Is that protect, is that protective? Um I think it's respect there's a certain respect but no it's uh it, it's it's more de- I'm more terrified of being killed in a car, car crash than anything else. They drive like <laughs> absolute maniacs. <laughs> it makes Miami look like makes Miami look staid and calm because And I think uh, our, our roads are probably better. They're not bomb Oh popped. wow. No it's <laughs> it's frightening actually. It's really I thought to myself thank god I went to confession right before I left for the trip because I'm not going to die in a, by being kidnapped or kill, uh, by shot be shot i'm going to kill be killed from a car crash but <laughs> thanks be to god i survived so uh, it's um it's a it's a again you use the word in your introduction oppressive which is a very good word i think that's the atmosphere one feels more than danger and that's for all the christians they feel oppressed because First, there's the antipathy being second-class citizens, as all Christians are in in Muslim-majority countries. They've always been second-class citizens um, in terms of law and and so many things. For example, in Egypt, they can't get certain jobs, etc., etc. But now there's a feeling of oppression because, and I felt this really for the first time in a way, which is my ninth visit since 2015, they're really an occupied country. They are citizens but northern Iraq, the, the Nineveh Plain, where the Christians have lived for 2,000 years, are really occupied by Iran. I mean, there are pictures of General Soleimani, the Iranian general, everywhere, Shia, clerics, ayatollahs. And yet this is Iraq. And I said to one of the priests, this feels like you're in an occupied country. And he was very silent. He said, mm-hmm. we are. So if you imagine America for the listeners, uh, the idea that, yes, you're so-called free in your country, but there are pictures, say, of uh, Vladimir Putin everywhere, and mm. there are really troops who are supporting him. Then you get a sense of what it must be like to feel, this isn't our country. So it's an oppressive feeling. Are Christians, because they're not in, in one of the, the subgroups of, of, of Islam, are they in a way sort of out of the crossfire, or are they just sort of standing there unprotected, uh, like a stag think, on, the, on the edge of a hill? I think, yeah, they're, they're very weak. That's what, what a priest said to me a long time time ago. They're very weak. They're not in the crossfire in the sense of the Shia-Sunni war, but there's an attempt, certainly now by the Shia, who are really surrounding them on the Nineveh Plain, which is their homeland, to push them out demographically, push them out economically. There's no killing going on. But the bishop said to me, we're under a silent persecution because they're selling houses. They're, of course, there aren't jobs, which is one of the things we're trying to do with my little charity. But it's that sense of trying to push them out and deny. For example, a perfect example is the denial of memory. Uh, there's a street in the town of Bartella where we're helping a number of businesses, which was completely Christian before 2014, before ISIS. They were all driven out, and of course, some have come back. But the town itself really now is a Shia town, and they've renamed one of the streets, the Street of the Martyrs. But it's all for Shia troops who were involved during the war. So there's a denial of history. It's a pretense, really, that they were always there. Um, when they weren't, they weren't the majority. Christians were the majority. So it's very hard to feel, as I said, that word oppression. You're just being oppressed. You're not being killed, but they don't want you there. And it's hard going, which is why we must keep praying. We do. We pray for them, Father. And and I'm glad for the the, the times that you remind us that you come on our show and remind us to pray for our brothers and sisters there. Tell us again about your your charity and how your charity helps the Christians in the Middle East. Well, we're very little, but I always say when I'm on, small is beautiful. And I really felt that this was... this trip was both very encouraging and very depressing. The depressing was a bit of what I told you already, but the encouragement was seeing families 
staying. They get a very small amount of money comparatively from us. Uh, we give them, we don't loan it. And they start a business or they've started it and then they stay. And one of them, the most impressive for me, the most, as it were, biblical, was a farmer. He's got a little bit of land, I think eight, eight acres or eight hectares, I'm not quite sure. But they've had a terrible drought in Iraq over the last three years, so very little rain. And you saw this image of brown soil and then beautiful green soil because we've helped pay for irrigation. He has a well, etc. So it's very powerful to see that sort of image of death and life. And as our so your money, man, so the money um, that that you gave him helped him build a well. Is that that's what it was right, for? To right. dig a he's well a, and build a pump and put built in a pump. A well, for instance, and he put in a pump and he put in irrigation and but he's that's committed. Like the, as, that's the difference between life and death for a farmer. Exactly. That's what I was struck with so powerfully. I thought, and the man said to me, our guide said, he'll stay. He will stay because he has land now, and the only way they'd force him off would be something like ISIS. So he will not emigrate. This is the great problem now that so many of the Christians are wanting to leave the country because they don't think they have a future. So our little charity just gives them money and helps them start a business. And please God, please God so far, they're all doing well. Um, I mean, they're struggling economically as everyone else's, but I went into a couple of the shops and some of the different businesses and asked how they're doing. They kind of shook their shoulders, but they're there. That's the point. That's so very, That must be very satisfying, Father, as that's opposed the best thing. to those huge charities and those NGOs where they're, they've got you know tons of heavy they're heavy heavy in the administration and then you wonder when does well, when does the help actually filter down to I don't want <laughs> to, to be rude about I don't want to be rude about anybody but you know I've been told uh, unfortunately there's a great deal of money that disappears into certain people's pockets and uh, the other thing that really is important for all the charities but it's more easy as it were being small is to listen to the people because so many times a big, big NGO can, can come in and say, well, you need this or such and such, but the people actually want something else. And the bishop said to me, he was very, very, very friendly to me this time, not that he's been unfriendly before, but he actually said to me, which is nice after eight years, you actually know the ground now. You you know the people. He gave me a big hug, which is an unusual thing. He's not Cardinal Dolan, who's hugging people all the time. <laughs> yes. But um, for an Iraqi bishop, it's kind of different, which was really nice because it, it confirmed for me that I'm not just a visitor anymore. And he said, what you're doing is so important. What we are doing, because I rely on the help of all our supporters, is so important because people, people are staying if you give them that help. So in that sense, it was very, very encouraging, very positive. And there's the flip side of all the negativity that I described. And Father, your your charity works with the people who are there with the things that they need to, to flourish and thrive. Many charities, in my experience and in my limited knowledge, I should say, I'm not an expert on charities. Many charities um, give things and then and then stamp out local in their givingness. They they stamp out the local the local economy sometimes. You know, they yeah. hand they hand things out and then the then the things that people are trying to to work with and sell and then their their little minor ways are they lose purchasing you know they lose that purchase in the economy so i feel like your well, charity goes to the um preserves what's there preserves and, and helps the helps the people you know do what what they what they want to do and are meant to do that's what we try i mean it's just uh, as i said it's very small but they are my I, the people who work for me or the people who work for us or help us mainly uh, are very strict in terms of checking people out and in fact often they encourage them to start the business before you've given them any business to check they won't just get up and run away or sell it which has right. happened to show their um, their their that they're in they're in they're yeah, all in they're committed. <laughs> they're committed they want to work these people want to there are people who want to sit and do nothing and receive charity. Um, but I'm very, uh, the other thing I like to try and tell the people when I'm there is we're not charity. Because, you know, sometimes if you receive charity, it's it's hard for your dignity to feel that you're, and for example, we don't have any publicity. You know, you see, you see logos of charities all over the place. Sure. We gave this, uh, there's no logo where most people actually don't know, for example, we've helped this, say, this family because so, but I'd like to tell them when I was speaking to them just last week, I, I say, look, we're brothers and sisters. I'm trying not to be pious, but it's true. We're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We're helping you. And maybe you will have to help us one day. And they laugh. And in your intro, you said, oh, well, we're free in the West. For example, do you know, Gracie, I think you do, that in England now, you can be arrested <laughs> for for prayer, for silent prayer. 
You can be arrested. We've just had two people arrested outside abortion facilities for allegedly silently praying. That is a an offence in England now. So it's not too hard to imagine a worse kind of persecution. I mean, in theory, that won't happen in the US with the First Amendment, but in that's theory. happening in England. In theory, Father, I mean, Father, would you come back on the show and we could talk about this again soon about the, the state of things in England? Because I had heard about those cases and I was tremendously shocked. I mean, the we're law. We're shocked, but a lot of people don't seem to be shocked. But yeah, there were. Uh, one of the Finnish, I'd happily come on, but the uh, Finnish MP, Paivi Raisin, again, her case has not been widely reported, except if you look for it, but she's a member of the Finnish parliament who was prosecuted and is being prosecuted for quoting the Bible on marriage. They call her the canary in the coal mine for Europe because effectively, if she's found guilty, it would mean the Bible itself is so-called hate speech. This is happening in Europe, but surprise, surprise, why are we not hearing about it in the media? I can leave that question hanging because I think most of, them, <laughs> most of the audience will know the answer to that one. But it's, it's a little it's a little unnerving. We haven't had our heads cut off yet, but again, just a, two weeks ago, a, spe- a priest was killed uh, uh, and, a, and a sacristan was killed. Oh, the priest is very injured. The sacristan was killed. Why? Because uh, the man was claiming it was a, a retribution for the most Muslim reconquista of uh, of of Andalus. Wow, extraordinary! I mean, that is extraordinary. That should be that should be front page news, shouldn't it? But and the reconquista and the reconquista was a fabulous thing. Of course <laughs> it was. We can say that. We can say that. But it's sad, isn't it? But it is very we've got sad. to be strong. We've got to be very strong. That's that's the encouragement of of just being strong in your faith, not being ashamed of it, being proud of it. And being willing to die for it. I mean, that's the ultimate test of your faith is, are you willing to die for it? So, Well, Father, I thank you so much for joining us and telling us about your trip to Iraq and your wonderful charity. It really is so effective and, and so so specific and so well uh, placed exactly where it needs to be. Nazarene.org, spelled with an we- S, <laughs> which is very thank important. You. Thank you, so, Gracie. Thank as you, always. Father Ben, and and please come on soon. I'm going to invite you again soon, so we can talk about the state of uh, religious liberty in Europe, which you're you're very uh, tuned with, and I think we'd like to all hear more about that. Thank you, Gracie. As I am an open book kind of radio hostess, I tell all my listeners everything basically that's going on in my life. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's the thing that I do. I know that I've mentioned probably too many times to count that my father died now almost two months ago. It's been a a very, very difficult time for me, for our whole family, but for me it's been the end of something so integral to my life, which was the constant presence of my father, his tenderness and his unqualified support and everything that I don't need to say to any of you who know what a good father is like who've had that blessing in your lives and so i wrote a piece for angelus news expressing my my sadness at my father's passing and my understanding of the place of mourning in our lives and i wanted to share it with you angelus news is the publication of the archdiocese of la and i'm very proud to be one of the columnists of that wonderful publication. I recommend it to all of you. There are wonderful, wonderful writers um, in that um, on that magazine, and it's it's a real it's a real deal. <laughs> the subscription is not very much, and I highly recommend it to you. I am the least of the writers. There are wonderful, wonderful um, people writing for that magazine, including Scott Hahn and Archbishop Gomez. So I will share this piece with you, and I I hope you enjoy it. It comes from my heart. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that to everything in life there is a season and an appointed time for every human experience. Our ancestors understood this. They lived the rhythms of life and respected them, their livelihoods tied to the harvests or the tides. They lived patiently attuned to the muffled cadences of their hearts, both the glad tempos and the dirges. Today it is harder for us to accept the true fullness of human experience, the wide breadth of the seasons of life. We live in rigidly controlled environments, our thermostats set to 73 degrees in summer and winter, our pantries full of the same food year-round. We think we can do the same to our hearts, living narrowly only the experiences we crave, like love's embrace, or at the very least, the steady hum of a cheerful and active life. The gloomy seasons we reject as unhealthy or morbid, 
and we seek the therapist's couch when a swamping tide of loss or grief doesn't recede at once. The experience we fear the most is that of death, with its awful finality and hideous separation. And yet death is embedded in life. It's here to stay. With all our scientific progress, we have not been able to extend our lifespan at all, let alone begin to see a way to achieve the pipe dreams of billionaires who have poured their capital into solving death. What we have been able to do is mute death, compartmentalize it, box it in, marginalize it, remove it from our sight, as we've done with so many of our cemeteries and funeral homes. Our old people die in hospices with trained assistants to sedate them on their way and are rushed to the crematorium when their souls have barely fled. Ashes are scattered in bodies of water while wakes and funeral rites have been replaced by celebrations of life. We are encouraged to celebrate immediately because grief hurts and what hurts has no business interrupting the cheerful tempo of our modern lives. My dear father died a month ago. He was 86 and had been diagnosed with a terrible terminal illness of ALS over two years ago. And yet, I was completely unprepared for his going away from us. His death had all the hallmarks of a good death. He died in a state of grace, his soul and mind well prepared, nobly accepting the slow crucifixion that God chose for him as his purifying end. He died at home with my mother, his wife of 56 years, yearning tenderly over him until his last racked breath. His children and grandchildren surrounded him on his deathbed, suffering but unwilling to miss a last glance from his eyes. It was normal, it was natural, it was to be expected, and it was a welcome relief. Clearly there's nothing for me to complain about, but I'm still grieving and it's made me reflect on the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. There is, in fact, a time to mourn, and I've learned that there is a blessedness in that time that we do wrong to reject. The one who has lost enters a different dimension, as though separated by a veil from the unaffected around her. She has come face to face with the calamity of death and its incomprehensible transformation of the person she loves. Where there were eyes with eager welcome, there are now glassy orbs that convey nothing. Where there was warm skin to pat and kiss, there is an awful leatheriness that repels the touch. Where there were words of affection, forgiveness, and self-sacrificial love, there is silence. She yearns for one moment more with him, a few seconds even, to see his tender smile, which he kept up no matter how cruel the torment of his paralyzed body. But that moment is not to be, and knowing that, she grieves. Grief is part of true love. When we mourn, observing all the age-old traditions that accompany bereavement, we live rightly through one of Ecclesiastes' appointed times. It's true that it hurts to carry the leaden weight that bows our shoulders, but when we wear the black that reflects our mood, kneel in prayer at the coffin, and cry at hearing the Ave Maria in Mass as a great lament, we do what our hurting human hearts need to do, declare to the skies the enormity of our loss. The extended time of our mourning, the months or years, is also a spiritually necessary time. During that stage, our minds become directed to eternal things, our souls softened for the consolation of the only one who can console. Our hopes go from meagerly material to highly ambitious. We dare to think of joyful things like reunions in heaven and an eternity of happiness. We have presence of God. We make time for prayer. We discover God is using our period of sorrow to draw us into the pure air of his company. These are graces easily missed when we set our emotional thermostats at the most comfortable temperature and reject the long chill of bereavement. While the materialist may dismiss mourning as sentimentalism that interferes with an active, achieving life, the Christian today can fall into the same mistake, but for other reasons. Don't be sad. You have an advocate in heaven now. And we believe in the resurrection, so there is nothing to cry about. You will be together soon in only a little while. There is theological truth to these words of comfort, of course, but no Christian should make the error of disdaining mourning and going straight to celebration. Jesus didn't. When the divine life on earth learned that Lazarus had died, he wept. Think of the enormity of that. The very same person who knew that he would raise Lazarus up again in just a few minutes, and the very same creator who had planned from the beginning of time to conquer death itself, cried at learning of the passing of his friend. We are meant to imitate Jesus in everything. Should we turn away from grief the way we turn away from his example of forgiveness of his tormentors? But why does Jesus weep? 
Great doctors of the Church have tried to answer that question. St. John Henry Newman, in one of his sermons, mused that it was more than sympathy for Mary and Martha. It was witnessing the victory of death, the greatest of the great miseries of the world, which filled our Lord's heart with pity. At the grave of Lazarus, he felt fully the contrast between Adam in the day in which he was created, innocent and immortal, and man as the devil had made him, full of the poison of sin and the breath of the grave. If this sorrowful contrast between what God had wrought and sin had corrupted could bring our Lord to tears, are we to resist grieving the death of a loved one? We who were made to walk eternally with our Maker in the dusk-scented garden are instead destined for the grave, and even worse, condemned to say farewell to those who are indispensable to our earthly happiness. Of course, our Lord conquered death through his passion and resurrection, and Christian faith and hope are waiting to relieve our grief in due course. There will come a time, I know, when thinking of my Father's tenderness will bring me smiles, not tears. When I picture his face, it won't be as I used to see it turned eagerly toward me as I entered his room, but instead gazing happily at the face of God. The time to weep will be over and the time to dance will come but not until I have allowed the rhythm and cadence of grief to play itself out in the muscles of my heart. It's been more than a month since I watched my father draw his last breath. That day I fed him his last meal, spoon by spoon, and I thank God for that gift. He signed to my mother to comb his bit of hair. To the end, he was an elegant, old-world Cuban of a type which is nearly extinct. He smiled on all of us reassuringly, bravely, infinitely lovingly, and then he left us. I don't doubt that God himself pitied us in the sorrow of that moment. Perhaps he even wept again. with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and joining us today is our very good friend, Greg Schleppenbach. So Greg, you are the Executive Director of the Culture Project International, and I'm so glad that you're on with us today so that you can tell us what the Culture Project is and so we can look out for it. Oh, great. Yeah, well, our, our mission is that we're an initiative of young people set out to restore culture through the experience of virtue. And so our missionaries proclaim the dignity of the human person and the richness of living sexual integrity, uh, inviting our culture to become fully alive. So that's our that's our mission. And so we have we hire young men and women out of college um, as missionaries. They commit to, you know, at least one year of, of, of service to the mission. They commit to daily holy hour and mass. They live in community, usually with um, there's usually five or so uh, in on a team. And we send these teams to dioceses that contract with us to, to bring in a team. The team lives in the diocese during the school year and travels around to speak to high school and middle school students on the topics of human dignity, sexual integrity or chastity, and uh, social media. And then we also give a parent talk. Um, and We try to let the parents know what their uh, children are, are being subjected to in, in a culture, in our culture, and, and also what, what we speak to them about, what our missionaries speak to them about. So that, that in a nutshell, is the mission. And um, so we, um, our, our primary mode of interaction with students is um, in, in classrooms, in, in schools, and also in youth groups and um, retreats, young youth retreats and such. So that's how we first sort of interact and get the attention of young people uh, with, I think, very engaging talks and and then we try to look for opportunities to you know disciple young people so more one-on-one so we're not just coming into a classroom you know once a year giving a presentation never then they never see from us again the idea is to go back to the classrooms multiple times but also have lunch encounters and other opportunities for more one-on-one small group kind of interaction where where real discipling can take place so that really is 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 our mission again in a nutshell our talks are uh, human dignity talk inspires 
young people about the miracle of human life, where our dignity comes from, various ways in which human dignity has been violated in the, in our past uh, throughout the world, but also currently in a variety of ways, abortion being a, a, a top way and one of the biggest ways in which human dignity is violated, but also things like bullying and, um, and human trafficking and, and other types of ways in which human dignity is undermined. Um, so, so we inspire them to the, the miracle that is in human life with scientific facts, with, you know, what it means means to be a, a made in the image likeness of God and how that it can be violated and how we can overcome it, how our, our witness, uh, our lives of virtue can overcome those, those attacks on human dignity. Same with human sexuality, where it's very much a theology of the body based. Our missionaries go through a, a significant amount of formation. Uh, weeks and weeks of formation in, in June. They meet at a, a Benedictine monastery for two weeks where they enter into the spirituality of the monks, uh, and develop a, a spiritual life, and and then uh, also learn how to fundraise their salaries. In, in October, for six weeks, they get together for intensive training on the topics that we speak about. We get, bring in expert speakers who will talk to them, and they develop the, and teach them, and then they, they practice and get to know the presentations that they're going to be giving, and, and then they practice as presentations. And before they go into the dioceses that we serve. And Greg, what is your entry point into the archdiocese? You contract with the archdiocese itself, or you is it a di- is it diocesal, or how is that done? It is, yes. It would be on the, the bishop who would invite us to come in, ask us to come in, and you know there is a, a fee associated with us sending uh, a team in there for the school year. They also provide the diocese provides a place for the missionaries to live in community. Typically, it's um, an unused convent or rec or some other structure owned by the diocese, and uh, so they live in the diocese for the year and again travel around and speak to and engage young people on these topics your target audience what ages uh, is the culture project aiming for sixth through 12th grade oh okay that's that's very specific and very and, and I think a very an extremely needed a very dry time uh, in my experience I'm, I'm in the Archdiocese of Miami and there is uh, I think uh, a, a real lack of um, attention to these things, and not because people don't care, but because it's hard to organize and and have these things, these topics attended to properly. I think there's a, a difficulty in knowing how to talk about them, and uh, maybe sometimes a lack of formation at the school level and the diocese level. Yes, for sure. And and you know what our missionaries do is really enhance what's going on in the diocese itself. You know, dioceses often have you know youth ministers, but they might have one for the whole diocese. And so what we provide is an enhancement to that and sending in you know a, a well-formed team of five, sometimes six missionaries, you know, who are just ready to go full time um, to assist in in reaching young people and getting these critical messages um, to our young people. And the fact that they are um, uh, young, you know, it's this sort of uh, peer ministry, uh, peer-to-peer ministry is really in- important too, because again, a lot of times teachers who are called upon to speak to these issues um, themselves might be, you know, not in an age range that young people can relate to, um, and whereas with these missionaries, they're very much able to to do that. So. Um, it's just a, it's a beautiful mission, a beautiful vision of having young people speak to young people about these important uh, messages. But it's also, you know, Gracie, as somebody who's spent more than 30 years uh, in the pro-life movement, really fighting the supply side of abortion, mm-hmm. um, to now be working on the demand side mm-hmm. and, and working upstream with young people to reach them earlier in their lives, uh, to to help them to live lives of virtue, to see what authentic love and human sexuality looks like and and to see how beautiful that is and and desirable to live that is is critically important if we're going to really change the culture of death and i i always hearken back to what uh, pope saint john paul said in evangelium vitae that it's an he said it's an illusion to think that we can build a true culture of human life if we do not help the young to accept and experience sexuality and love and the whole of life according to their true meaning and in their close interconnection so, you know, that document, he, he spoke about the roots and the origins of the culture of death and what we need to do to rebuild a culture of life and a civilization of love. And he said, you know, if we're not focusing on helping young people to understand uh, and live authentic human sexuality um, 
you know, it's going to be really, really difficult to build a true culture of human life. I'm really, I'm really impressed that you, that you, that you made this switch, that you made this, this big change in your life. I mean, I think it was probably a, a big, a very big decision to go from this long time that you've been at the USCCB and, and sort of at the top of the, at the top of the, the food chain in a sense and the pro-life movement. Um, and you're going now to the source of the problem, right? Like instead of, yeah. like you say, supply side and demand side, I worry a lot in, in this ro- in this post-Roe v. Wade America, we concentrate a lot on things like pregnancy care centers. And I'm a huge proponent. I'm, I'm the director of the Miami Archdiocese Pregnancy Care Centers, the, the medical side. Uh, and I volunteer there and I couldn't be more excited about what we do there. But but let's face it, unless people start understanding who made them and why they're made and what for and what they're supposed to do with their beautiful bodies, there's never going to be a lack of, of demand for abortion. And for pregnant, like pregnancy care centers are wonderful, but we have to, like you say, we have to go to the source of the problem, which is that young people simply are not getting the information and formation they need. It's, it's so true. And, you know, we have a ready-made audience, you know, just within the Catholic Church mm-hmm. with our, you know, our Catholic schools and our religious ed programs. And, you know, again, many, many instructors, teachers are doing a beautiful job of imparting this, but it's just, it, you know, there's always need for more. There's always, it's just, there's never enough time in a, in a, in a curriculum to really, to do, to do justice to it and to have, you know, full-time missionaries whose sole focus is to connect um, and mentor and disciple with young people um, and to live, um, you know, live beautiful lives of virtue as examples, beautiful examples of um, what it could be like. So true. The example, an example is worth a million lectures, isn't it? It is. It, it truly is. Especially of a young person, because too many, um, too many younger people um, have never seen an example of, of virtue lived out, uh, that kind of virtue lived out, right? I mean, they might, the situation they're growing up in and what they see on their Instagram and on, on TikTok and everything in the culture around them, there's, there are, there's nothing to model themselves on. Oh, and not only that, it's just, it's it's grotesque in so many ways, the examples out there, the, the bad influences to young people. I, you know, Gracie, I was uh, driving up to the USCCB um, office when I was still working there. Um, this, I guess it was probably this summer sometime. And as I'm driving up the streets of Northeast DC, I, I come coming across a, a woman walking, young woman walking on the sidewalk, and I could see she, there was something written on the back of her shirt. And as I got closer, I could see what it said, and I was mortified. I mean, it's it said I do it on the first date, and do it was a very crude term. Really? And yes, and I just I saw that and I thought, oh my goodness! I mean, I we oh, obviously that's, being that's in absolutely this, tragic. It is tragic, and I you know I'm I'm not ignorant. I know there's a lot of garbage out there, but to see somebody wearing that on a shirt just spoke to me about the the depth of despair and lack of hope and lack of virtue that is out there. And we have a beautiful message. The church has a beautiful message of what it means to live sexual integrity within in virtue that is attractive and beautiful we just have to we have to do a, a better job of, of reaching more young people with that beautiful message one one difficulty that I see in, in Catholic schools um, obstacle that I see is that the good-hearted people that are teaching the younger children and and the middle schoolers they you know they they don't want to speak about ugly things and they don't want to disturb the children's purity purity and their innocence. Um, so these a lot of subjects that that should be taken up uh, by middle school at least are aban- are not talked about in school. Instead, it's the culture and the internet that's giving the children the ideas that are forming them. And and I sympathize with that a lot because it's very difficult to talk about you know things that we don't even want them to come out of our mouths <laughs> because they're not because they're so. They're so offensive, even enough to explain to children, to young people why why that's going to break their hearts and, and damage their souls. But the, the culture doesn't have those kinds of reticences. No, no, not at all. And, and like it or not, our young people at 
disturbingly young ages are being exposed to this. And the age of cell phones and internet, um, you know, every young person practically has at their fingertips, you know, access to very, very disturbing uh, images mm-hmm. and, 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 and perspectives. And so it, it just, it's, we, we absolutely have to reach them with the, 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 these positive, beautiful messages. And, and, you know, the way, the way we do it, our presentations are done very sensitively. We, we, we don't get into um, you know deeply sensitive aspects of these issues so we we address it with you know an age sensitive sort of way but still that raises the issues that raises that are, that the are issue. important. you don't you don't run away from the issue itself <laughs> which right and and let me ask you tell me something about your missionaries because I have children uh, that age a couple in that in that age range and I'm wondering what kind of you know fabulous, noble young person says, I'm going to give a, give away a year uh, to this beautiful project? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, that's a great question. And I, and I would start with, you know, reframing the um, characterization as this giving away a year. Um, sometimes we hear people say, you know, it's, this is a gap year in between college and a real job. And, and I say nothing could be further from the truth. This is this should be almost like required formation for anybody coming out of college before they enter the working world. Um, for one thing, um, how we how we live our lives uh, at, a, at our in the younger ages is going to dictate sort of how what we end up doing, how we live our lives as we get older, as we go into our vocations, whether it's marriage or religious life or whatever it might be. And think about what this year this year or two does. They are living in community with other people, daily holy hour, daily mass. Um, they, we have a, a dating, we call it a dating fast. So during that first year, if they're not dating, they're not supposed to enter into a dating relationship. If they're in the middle of dating, then they're not supposed to advance beyond dating to getting engaged. Um, and while some see that as hard or, or negative, I like to say, you know, that is, that's marriage prep. Mm-hmm. Everything we do in our life, that's vocational prep, not just marriage prep. So everything we do, whether we know it or not, before we get married, we are in marriage prep or vocational prep because it's, it's determining, you know, what's going to be of value to us, what our, what our character is, whether we are sacrificial in, our, in the giving of our, our time and ourselves all of which is hugely important uh, for either married life or religious life. Uh, our experiences in, in this year, the missionaries' experiences in, in this year, is, is critically uh, helpful to whatever vocation they might have because they're living in, they're living in community, they're learning to live with others, live mm-hmm. sacrificially. Um, they're learning lives, living lives of virtue and, de- and deepening their own prayer life and, and, and spiritual life. Nothing could be better preparation, whether it, it is they ultimately are called to the married state or the, or religious life or, um, or or whatever the single life. This is great formation for life, and is only going to help them no matter what they ultimately end up doing in life, you know, vocationally or occupationally. Well, Greg, I am completely sold on the culture project. <laughs> I can't imagine anything more important. And I and I see the importance and the need of it um, in my in my daily life, in my daily work, and my children in Catholic school, and in my work with um, I, I go in all the time to, to give talks to elementaries and middle schools and high schools and Catholic ones, and I see I see this great great uh, thirst, you know, for for true formation and and formation in virtues and the dignity of life and all the things that will keep our children safe as they grow and mature into young men and women. So how can our listeners know more about the Culture Project? Yeah, well, they can certainly check us out on our website, thecultureproject.org, thecultureproject.org. We've got lots of information on there about um, our the, the missionaries and the mission life, about the organization, our, our presentations, um, you know, our, our, our biggest needs are, are recruiting more missionaries. The, the demand is enormous for our, our missionaries. Um, more and more dioceses want to bring a team in. Um, I, I mentioned uh, we're in four dioceses now, uh, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Toledo, and many, many more would like us to like to have a team. So we are 
um, working overtime to recruit the necessary missionaries we need to do this this important mission. Um, so certainly, you know, people letting other young people know, getting college students, letting uh, colleges and any any avenue where you know, where there are you know seniors or graduating seniors. Uh, to know about this wonderful opportunity to spend the life, to spend some of their life uh, in formation that will help them uh, throughout the entirety of their life. That's hugely important. That kind of promotion uh, is hugely important to help us recruit more missionaries. Um, also, there's obviously, you know, uh, opportunities to help us financially as well. So there's lots more to learn about the Culture Project and how individuals can help us um, expand our mission on our website. Well, thank you, Greg. And to our listeners, that's thecultureproject.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have the chance to ponder with you. The consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday, which he, with unforgettable down-to-earth images, will tell us about the double mission we have as Christians, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Notice first what he doesn't say. He doesn't call us to be the salt or light of the church, because our mission is to go out and transform the world, beginning, of course, with our being transformed by Christ within the church. If we're not going out and striving to make disciples, we're not really faithful disciples. If we're not seeking to transform the world, we're still clueless followers. Likewise, Jesus doesn't say you must become the salt of the earth or the light of the world. He says rather you are the salt and light. This is very significant. By our baptism, we've already received this identity and vocation. In the baptismal rite, our baptismal candle is lit from the paschal candle, showing that Christ, the light of the world, has passed his light unto us to be kept burning brightly. And in the extraordinary form of baptism, salt is put into babies or catechumens' mouths in order to remind them that they are to be salt for the earth. The key for us is whether we're faithful to this call and live this mission as salt and light. Jesus says today that our salt can lose its saltiness and our light can be hidden, in which case they're not doing any good. So our Christian lives can lose their special character. We know that this has happened to many. This Sunday, Jesus reminds us of who we are and wants to strengthen us to be whom he has made us to be by baptism. To understand our vocation and mission more clearly, however, we need to grasp the images Jesus used and what they meant when he used them. So let's look at each more deeply. When Jesus called us to be the salt of the earth, his first followers would have understood in three different ways because there were three fundamental uses of salt in the ancient world. First was as a preservative. Salt was used to preserve meat or fish from rotting. There was obviously no electricity and therefore refrigeration in the ancient world. If any fish or meat was going to last in the sweltering Middle Eastern climate, it needed to be salted. There was an ancient saying that the animal or fish being preserved was already dead. Salt would therefore serve almost as a life preserver, something that would keep the meat or fish fillets from likewise dying. It almost had the sense of a resurrection, giving them life, whereas they, like the fish or animals from which they came, should be dead. All of this points to the fact that Jesus calls us to be his instrument to prevent the earth from going to corruption, from dying. We're supposed to keep the world and others good. We all know that there are certain people who, when they walk into a room, keep others on their best behavior because they lift others up to a higher standard by the way they themselves live. That's what Jesus is calling all of us to do. Are we the types of people who lift others to better behavior? The second purpose of salt was to start a fire. At Jesus' time, people would take animal dung, mix it with a lot of salt, and then light it on fire. The dung alone couldn't be ignited, but when it was mixed with salt, the salt would be able to be lit and then would gradually heat the dung, which kept heat for a really long time. Salt was the ancient equivalent, therefore, of starter wood or lighter fluid for a barbecue. In calling us to be the salt of the earth in this way, Jesus is reminding us of two parts of our mission. We see this in that salt can redeem almost anything, even turning excrement into something useful and good. As salt of the earth, we're called to be God's instrument for for bringing good out of the evil we encounter, to help even those who are given over to evil to start producing something good. Secondly, we see that salt is supposed to be a fire starter. We're supposed to be easily lit by God, incapable of heating others up. The third and final function of salt at Jesus' time we've still maintained today, to give flavor to the food we consume. A little bit of salt, as we know, can influence a whole meal. This points to the fact that we, as salt of the earth, are called to give flavor, to bring joy to the earth. 
So many in the world think that to enjoy themselves, there has to be a frat house atmosphere, where there's plenty of booze, drugs, dim lights, lots of willing members of the opposite sex, and other types of behaviors that lead people to hangovers, methadone treatments, STDs, and other regrettable and preventable consequences. Jesus calls us to show what real joy in life is, to be people who are happy, who are truly blessed by living together with Jesus is the cause of our joy. We come to Jesus who says to us each time, I have come so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And we're called to bring that joy to the world. Jesus says, however, that for us to fulfill this mission as salt of the earth, we need to ensure that our salt doesn't go flat. How does salt lose its saltiness? The biochemist in me will tell you that it happens when the sodium gets separated from the chloride by other cations and anions. How do we as human beings lose our saltiness? By getting separated from Christ by other persons or things, by the cations of positive things and the, like pleasure and the anions of negative experience like worries and so forth. When we get separated from Christ, then we can begin to lose the three qualities our salt is meant to bring to the earth. Second attribute Jesus describes today of our mission, of what distinguishes us from others, that we're called to be light of the world. At Jesus' presentation that we celebrated earlier this week, Simeon called Jesus the light of revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus later said about himself, I am the light of the world. In calling us to be the light of the world, Jesus wants us to reflect his light. He sends us out as light of the world because the world is living in the midst of so much darkness. The darkness of grief, of physical pain, of broken hearts, of depression, ignorance, and sin. Jesus sends us out to be light for this world in darkness. In the Psalms we sing, the just man is a light in the darkness for the upright. And Jesus calls us each to be that light. There are two fundamental purposes for light as we know. The first is to help people see. The second is to warm. Christ has done both for us. He's come mercifully and taught in such a way that we may walk as children of light and be true children of the light. So, the Christian life is meant to be luminescent, like the lights on a landing strip at an airport on a foggy night that help planes land. In the midst of so many walking in valleys of darkness, Christians are called to burn with light so that others can follow us in following Jesus, the light of the world. Similarly, light gives off warmth, and Christ has come into the world to warm us by his love, to burn away whatever in us is frigid or tepid, so that we in turn may warm others by the fire of divine life. When we approach Jesus and when others approach us, we and they should feel like someone cold approaching a lit fireplace. For this to occur, Jesus tells us we need to ensure that the light of our life doesn't remain hidden. Our light is supposed to illumine others, not to be hidden under a bushel basket of false humility or peer pressure or shame to live as a Christian. Our faith is meant to be visible. There are some Christians who are afraid to live their faith in a public way, who succumb to secularist intimidation to keep their faith private and hidden in a closet. Their acquaintances know far more about what they think of sports or the weather or politics than what they believe about Christ. Our faith, however, though intensely personal, is not supposed to be private. It's supposed to be a light for others. In fact, it's supposed to be so the most notable thing about us. The first thing our family members or friends or fellow students or workers will say about us, that we remind them a little or a lot of Jesus. We're living in an age, we have to admit, in which fewer Christians are living as salt of the earth and light of the world. And our societies are paying the price for it. The world desperately needs Christians being Christians to prevent culture from being corrupted, to start the right fires of goodness, to show where true joy is, to help guide society by the splendor of truth and the warmth of real love that are not separated from each other. But many Christians have lost their saltiness and brightness. Our societies are becoming lost, vulgar, even anti-Christian, despite the fact that Christians, nominally at least, comprise a majority of citizens. We even have some professedly Catholic leaders speeding that corruption and progress into moral darkness. That's because, for many, Christians have become detached from Christ and have extinguished his light through sinfully choosing to live by the standards of the world rather than of the gospel. That's why those who love Jesus, who want to be faithful to their baptismal calling, need to redouble their focus and become whom Christ wants us to be, whom he will help us to be. This Sunday, Jesus, who calls us anew to be salt of the earth and light of the world in order to save the world and lead it on the path to light and life everlasting, wants to give us in the Mass all the grace he knows we need to live up to our vocation. He wants to give us his help to prevent our salt from losing its saltiness and our light from going out or being hidden. Let's get ready to receive that help and respond with courage and go out and live 
as who we by baptism are called to be and who Jesus, with great love and confidence, never ceases to call us to be or to help us become. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 